A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by a Year in Film's own supervising producer and podcaster, Emily Gagne, and freelance writer, Mariah E. Gates. When we dove into 1992 in our very first season of the podcast, we had a look at the supposed Year of Women, which left Gina Davis wandering around Hollywood in a post-Thelma and Louise world with projects aplenty and no doors opening. Being a woman creative in Hollywood trying to get personal projects off the ground has never been easy. Please refer to our episodes of the podcast about Joan McLean Silver, Lena Vertmuller, Leslie Harris, etc. Now, today we're looking at two directors making indie films in the late 80s. But before we do, Mariah, what was the North American film landscape like for women directors in 1988? And what are some of the films that should be on our radars if they aren't already? It was actually uh, looking bright. In 1988, uh, about 10 years earlier, there's a group called the Original Six who took, started the Women's Steering Committee for the DGA. They convinced, but through that, convinced the DGA to sue, I think it was Warner Brothers in Columbia, um, for discriminatory hiring practices. It got thrown out because the DGA cannot be a class action. Like, they, they're not a class. As a union, they wouldn't be multiple people. They would be a collective being represented by an individual. Exactly. So they didn't count as a gotcha. class. However, they scared the heck out of Hollywood. And so <laughs> you saw a lot of women moving from independent film because prior to that in the 70s, there was like maybe a handful of women directing for studios, but a lot of independent film, which is, I think, often people forget there were actually quite a few women making independent films in the 60s, 70s. But into the 80s, a lot of them transferred into doing um, films for major and minor studios. And so you have things like Martha Coolidge, who made Valley Girl and a handful of other films, Amy Heckerling with Fast Times, Look Who's Talking. Susan Seidelman had like five films in a row, including Desperately Seeking Susan, which launched Madonna's career. And, and it's really- we've talked about that on the podcast. If people want to know more about that, that story is wild. Yeah. And her like just calling up and being like, hey, put me in can. And they were like, okay. Yeah, Susan's an amazing person. And so, yeah. you know, by the time you get to 1988, you'd had all kinds of like culturally piercing films directed by mostly white women. Um, and you're starting to see a lot of doors open and a lot of voices coming through. Um, and because they cut their teeth in independent, it's really interesting voices. So like, we're going to be talking about Penelope Spears. She she came through in the 70s with like crazy queer short films. And then her um, output in the 80s, as we'll get to, is some of the most singular work I think ever put to celluloid. And then by the 90s, she did a lot of the movies people know her for, like um, Wayne's World and Little Rascals. But the 80s, Penelope is like her, her own genre, practically. So um, there was a film that I always forget about until I look it up. But you had um, this crazy movie called Casual Sex with Leah Thompson that um, directed directors Genevieve Roberts. And I feel like it may be her only film. It's not great, but it's also really refreshing because it's a sex comedy completely from the perspective of straight women. Um, Interesting. And there's a lot of objectification of men, which I find very fascinating. But at the end, it's all about romance. And um, whereas, you know, a lot of sex comedies with men the romance comes in at the end and you really don't buy it. Whereas here, it's yeah. like, it's a little of both. So um, it was a good time, 1988. In the 80s as well, you start to see 
these women directors not just directing like what, what would be considered as women's pictures, like rom-coms or dramas starring two women about, you know, the aging gracefully. Like you don't get a lot of that. You are seeing like people directing action films. One of my personal favorites, Jumpa Jack Flash and Penny Marshall, yeah. right? Like which led by a black woman, Whoopi Goldberg. So you're seeing people do getting to, uh, Catherine Bigelow. That's when she starts to come up, right? You have, uh, you have real, you have real genius. All kinds of all kinds of really mm-hmm. uh, films of of every genre. Pretty much, you have horror films. We love us some Mary Lambert here. Cat Shay, yeah, Cat Shay was making horror films. Cat Shay, if you look up her career, she launched like four or five different Oscar winning cinematographers as part of her camera crew. It's it's a lot. Like she really was like a kingmaker in terms of who was in her camera department um and now you know they're names that you'll recognize and, and know and Kat Shea half the people don't know who she is anymore she came up through Corman didn't she same as Penelope Spheris yeah. it's another Corman launch yeah. okay interesting yeah I mean Corman is just it didn't matter mm-hmm. Corman yeah, exactly it didn't matter who you were if you could do do something on a budget you know it's you were treated <laughs> poorly either way as long as you can yeah, get it all much, through. yeah and and the thing the funny thing about Corman is he knew that he hired women not because he was trying to be like right wrongs he hired women because they were cheaper (laughs) which i mean really (laughs) money is the great egalitarian (laughs) and like you're like you know what that's awful but at least it launched a lot of women's careers including one of the people we're talking about today yeah yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, let's get into our first film today. So in 1980, UK pop band The Vapors had an enormous hit with the problematic turning Japanese. In 1984, Alphaville expanded on the benefits of being big in Japan. And in 1986, Ron Howard's gung-ho tried to find sense in the culture clash between Americans and the Japanese in the automotive industry with a lot of non-Japanese people in the actual cast. The Western world has been fascinated by Japanese culture and has incorporated and or interpreted it and appropriated it in our own pop culture since World War II. But equally fascinating is Japan's interpretation and interest in American culture. Thus, what could be a generic run-of-the-mill fish-out-of-water story becomes so much more in the hands of Fran Rubel Kazooie in Tokyo Pop. Emily, did you feel like a fish out of water in this one or did it sing for you? Um, I did feel like a fish out of water and then I hadn't seen this movie before and nobody has. (laughs) No. And I honestly hadn't heard about it, uh, for a long time, even though Fran was definitely on my radar because I love the Buffy movie from 1992. I think it's really unsung and underrated, uh, in the reflection of, uh, the series, you know, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I have never been to Japan so I've only seen it through the movies. So I did kind of feel like the lead character in this film watching this and exploring Japan. Um, and I'm also blonde. So apparently <laughs> I would also be big in Japan. That's what the movie says, which there's problematic parts to this movie for sure that I think we can talk about. But it's so interesting to me that Fran, you know, had a relationship with Japan. Her her husband, who is a producing partner of hers, is Japanese. And I think she brought some of her own personal experience to making this film uh, as a person that's that's experiencing that as a person that's experiencing that culture from outside of that culture. Can you give us just a little bit of a rundown about what is this movie about? Absolutely. So uh, a white woman named Wendy, who's from LA, makes an impulsive decision to take her friend up on an, an impromptu and an formal invitation to visit her in Japan. And she books this flight and she just decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Japan. And while she's there, she's kind of struggling to find her place. And she meets this guy from a local rock band. His name is Hiro. And they fall for each other. And they also start to collaborate 
with their music. And she becomes the front woman to his band. And basically through their relationship, working relationship and romantic relationship, they kind of realize that they have to go separate ways and that they're kind of holding each other back from true success. Do you think that that's accurate? Um, and uh, hearing you describe the plot, it made me think about this uh, 1960 film called One Way Ticket to Love, which is a Japanese film reflecting um, the way that rock and roll in, came into Japan's culture with the GIs and with the reconstruction of Japan. And it stars this actor called Misaki Hiro, who was known as like the Japanese Elvis. He brought rockabilly sensibilities, including the style and the music to Japan, fired obviously by by Elvis and, and others of that era. And you kind of see that reflected in Tokyo Pop with the um the lead character and his desire to be basically a rockabilly star and the opening sequence, which has a rockabilly Japanese band. And and it's it's fascinating that it's been in the culture at that point for almost 30 years and it's still not seen as like an honorable trade and not a real art. And uh, Japan is a country known for its centuries and centuries old arts very rebellious. One of the things I love so much about the, this movie is it has all this uh, incredible cinema verite archival style footage that Fran Kazooie is literally just shooting on the streets of Tokyo from yeah. a very Westerner point of view of like, isn't this fascinating? But it doesn't feel like it's gawking. It just feels like it's documenting. And one of my favorite yeah. is that there's this, uh, there's a group of uh, men who are dressed up as rockabilliers. They're wearing jeans, it's like tight jeans. They're dancing. They've got pompadours all slicked back. Like it's, it's a thing. And this is apparently very common in Japan where like these different groups of uh, subcultures meet in Yoyogi Park on Sundays because that's the day and they they dress up in their th- their whatever their like uniforms would be for that subculture so they are different together which I feel like is a very Japanese thing it's very interesting which like we just don't have here like we have people we have our subgroups right like our goths and our punks and you know our preps whatever you want to you know breakfast uh, we've got breakfast club going on here we don't need to talk about <laughs> that. But it, it is just such a unique thing for us to kind of look at. And I feel like, although it's documented, it's not saying, isn't this weird? Which I think a lot of stuff about Japan does do, or uh, that Westerners do about Japan. Yeah, like, even, um, you know, I love the movie, but Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation definitely feels a bit gawky and uses, you know, Bill Murray's height difference for a lot of comedy that has, it's like the one part of the movie that really is still icky. <laughs> well, we have to bring up Lost in Translation because this film is so often compared to that. And uh, there's a great interview. We're pulling a lot of stuff from uh, this interview with uh, Fran Kazooie very recently from 2019 from the Japanese Society in New York. She has a residence in New York and a residence in Tokyo. And the interviewer asks her about Lost in Translation because this had also played side by side with Lost in Translation as part of the series. And she's like, there's, there's nothing the same. These are completely different films. And he was trying to like gently be like, perhaps there are some parallels between <laughs> yeah. these two films, just mm-hmm. one or two. And uh, interesting, uh, Diamond Yuki um, also was asked this question because he attended that screening. And he said that this is a movie about hope because it takes place in the, the boom. And Lost in Translation is a movie about depression because it is in a time of economic disparity for Japan. So I was like, Okay, that's two interesting perspectives. Diamond Yukai is also in 
Lost both, in Translation. Both films, yeah. Both films. Uh, he plays the, the Centauri whiskey director who's yelling at Bill Murray in the film. But here's the thing that's fascinating to me is that uh, Sofia Coppola claims she has never seen Tokyo Pop, and I think that is incorrect. I'm sure <laughs> she saw it at some point. Knowing what we know about Sofia Coppola, that she was a VHS head in the 80, in this 80s and 90s, I I. I, she must have seen this film. What do you guys think? I feel like she probably, I know I've seen a lot of films when I was a youth that I forget about till I watch it again. So I'm I'm assuming likely she saw it. It went into her subconscious. She didn't remember and it came back out. And 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 then I believe that. That happens. I can see that. I, I can also see why you wouldn't want to say you'd seen it if you feel like you've stolen from it without yeah. meaning to. Not that I'm saying she's stolen from it, but you know, if it got there and you don't know and you didn't realize you were borrowing from somebody else, that's that does not seem great. So yeah. I can imagine why she would be defensive. Yeah. But I also think she probably saw it as a teen. I can see that. Like, yeah. Even the ending, like I I did come into this thinking about Lost in Translation because Becky brought it up to me and was like, you know, Lost in Translation and this movie are are a bit linked. And I even felt like the ending when they kind of say goodbye and we don't like fully hear their conversation. I like was thinking about the end of the Lost in Translation where we like yeah. don't know what they say, what she says, you know. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, it was embedded in her subconscious somehow and it came out a little bit. Like even just casting Diamond like in that opening, like that just he's he's not in a bunch of other movies like it just. Yeah. He's only in a handful. Yeah. And he's, he's more of a rock star. He's part of one of Japan's biggest bands called the Red Warrior. Like he, at this point, he was at the very beginning of his career, but now the Red Warriors are like an iconic band. X-Japan, which is an iconic underground punk band, is also in this film. Nice little link for our next film and that that sort of music thing. But she's, she's very much got her finger on the pulse of like what was very cool in pop culture in Japan at that time. Like you're getting kind of the best of the best of that underground world here. Yeah, which I think adds to your point about why it is a time like an Im important time capsule you really get that sense of what that culture was like what it was like to be alternative in the in basically reagan era japan as opposed to alternative in reagan era america um which makes it a really interesting double with this other, with the other film we're going to talk about because they they're both almost documentary like in the way they capture culture and they're both a little staged yeah, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> just just a little. Yeah, we're gonna get into some of the controversy over decline of Western civilization part two because. Oh boy. Um, why don't we talk about Fran Kazooie just a little bit and kind of get into her history and how she ended up in Tokyo as a white woman from New York in the first place. Uh, Mariah, do you want to take us down the Fran tunnel for a little bit? Yeah, um, I actually am not all that familiar with how she met Kaz, her husband. Um, do you, I, I don't actually know that story. I think they were just hanging out was the impression I got that he just happened to be going back and forth in New York. They both worked in, she was a PA in, in Japan at the time and he worked in film. Got so it. she was actually working, There's it's kind of a fascinating story. There was a filmmaker who was doing his best to find uh, export like export Japanese films to America, but specifically construct Japanese films that would sell in America. Mm. So he was bringing all that over. Now, the thing is that he wasn't just focused on that. He was also focused on cocaine trafficking to yes, America and smuggling everything over <laughs> uh, in like the film reels and stuff like that. So she was working for that guy. She worked for a bunch of other people because she was American. She was a script supervisor for a long time. And then she met Kaz because he was a producer. So there you go. Yeah. There's your and true then, crime oh, link. <laughs> that's a great... That's that's a great story. Um, and then when they got married and she mostly stayed in Japan, they created Kazooie Enterprises, which 
imported all the like independent films from America and Europe at the time. So Stranger Than Paradise, she's got to have it. While the heart, all kinds of all kinds of American and European culture to Japan and help market it and make these films big, which I think is I think is interesting um, because Japanese films took so it was so many Japanese films post war didn't make it to America yet all these American films are making it now to Japan is the art house ones. Yeah. And not the, you know, they're not, she's not bringing Top Gun. <laughs> like She's like figuring out how to sell Jim Jarmusch to, to the Japanese, which is interesting when you think about like Jarmusch's later films too. Um, Mystery Train definitely has an element of, of Japanese culture to it. It's fascinating. Well, she introduced Lynch as well. Like David Lynch was on her list. She brought in a bunch of his films. I think like Mulholland Drive was on mm. her list that she brought in. Like there was a, yeah, a bunch. Uh, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, all of that was brought over by her um, and her husband, of course. But I mean, it just kind of shows that like, again, these are all very cool movies. Like, yeah. These are all very alternative, very funky. And so she's she has that idea of what this is. So when it came time to kind of make Tokyo Pop, she already has that in, inherent coolness, which, I mean, we're going to see in Penelope Spheres as well. There's just something very unusual with an unusual point of view that she's bringing to her film already. Yeah, and, and I think you can see the aesthetic sort of appreciation of where the alt culture in Japan and the alt culture in America, like the Venn diagram of where they, where they hit the same exact sweet spot. And you see it in her films and you see it in the kind of films she brought over. Um, like David Lynch in particular, his films are just as weird as some of the weird uh, avant-garde sort of Japanese films from the sixties. If you like, um, it's what I'm thinking of uh, funeral parade of roses. You'll probably enjoy David Lynch. Shout <laughs> yeah. out to Hausu. Yeah, um, kind of yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah Hausu. Yeah. Hausu and Eraserhead, great double feature. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Except I don't I think there's a cat in Eraserhead. Dang. There should there be. Should, there not. should be. There's, yeah, there should be a cat in every movie. It's but. basically the radiator woman. She just needs love like all cats. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> um, I think what's interesting to me, and we find this so often throughout um, women filmmakers, we talked earlier this year about pepper, uh, uh, earlier this series about uh, peppermint soda, and there just seems this reluctance of women who are like, I'm going to write this thing but I don't actually want to make it. Like, I don't want to be the director. I don't want that power. I don't want that responsibility. And that kind of happened with Fran Kazooie as well, that she was so resistant of, like, making a movie, making a movie. And um, because she was so ingrained in these film, uh, this film world, you know, of all these directors and all these people who were like, well, when are you making your movie? When is it your turn? And she was like, well, I don't know. And everyone was like, well, your relationship with Kaz is so unique. Maybe you should, and your, your situation is so unique. Maybe you should kind of consider doing something like that. And so what's wild to me is that this was made almost entirely on private investment. So she yeah. really could make That's the wild. movie. She I know people were just like, oh, you want to make a movie? We're in the middle of a boom economy here. Have like $25,000 from various private investors. Um, you know, got a bit of got a bit of Joe Micklin silver going on there as well. But they just, and the, but with that, then she isn't beholden to a studio. She's not beholden to like any weird investors who are like, I need you to throw in a bunch of like X-rated scenes here. Like there there is <laughs> a sex have to figure out how to like have nudity without it being leering like so many of the Corman 
directors did. <laughs> no, there's no friends running around naked together. Exactly. No, like, yeah, I mean, there is, there's sex in this movie, but none of it feels icky. It's actually this, yeah. I love, I love sex scenes that feel real. And this definitely has like a real feeling sex scene where like, you're just kind of getting to know someone. I, I, I love it. Yeah, yeah. And, and she really gives Carrie Hamilton's character a lot of agency in this film. She, you know, you, you're introduced to her and she's already being messed, you know, messed over by a guy who promised her something. And she takes, takes the initiative to be like, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere where maybe I'll be appreciated. And then, and then makes it work, which is, is fascinating. And I, you know, maybe this was Fran's based on Fran, how Fran came and did business in Japan. But I do think her character sometimes pushes American um, aggressiveness yeah, and is a little uh, not respectful of what of what Diamond's character is trying to tell her. Like this is not how the Japanese do it. And and as I was watching it, I was like, I can't tell if we're supposed to be like, yeah, you should just do it the American way, or if you're supposed to be a little, you know, off put by how aggressive she is with you know, like wanting to do the TV show that's not it's not how we do it. We're not going to have any respect. Yeah, I think it's because she's she's confused herself. And I think that's one of the things that works so well about this is that it's a rom-com, it's fluffy, but it also doesn't fit into the standard tropes. Like they don't end yeah. up together. And she, it's it's more, I love the way she puts it that she's like, it's more powerful to know who you are. And like in, in like a, a wanky sort of way, she's like, and that's the greatest love of all. You know, that's yeah. the best way a romance story can end. But she's not wrong. Is like these two people aren't together. She realizes that like she's a gimmick. She's not going to have a big career and she needs to go back to America where she's going to be able to do it. And in doing that, she has to let go of this man who is she has grown with and who has helped her grow and become what she needed to be to move on to the next phase of her life. And that's an extremely profound, like, relationship yeah. realization. For a pop rom-com, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if if there had been more, like, studio investors and if there hasn't so wasn't so much private investment, if they would have changed that ending and made oh, it. Oh, yeah. so they that, probably would have, yeah. Right? Like, like Desperately Seeking Susan or some of those others in the 80s where they tacked on a, a happier, like, man-woman. Everyone's all happy with their straight relationship endings. Yeah. <laughs> and there was, you know, like, I'm sure you talked about this um, when you talked about Desperately Seeking Susan, but that's one where, you know, there was resistance all the way from the casting of the male lead to the ending because they had, a, they're women and they knew what women like to see and they knew that women also like to just have friends, right? And there was just a lot of pushback and they got, you know, they had some compromises, got got the casting, didn't get the ending. This is a movie where she gets the casting and she gets the ending. And and this is just three years later. You you love to see that. And you, you'll see, you know, going into the 90s, a lot more women pushing for their point of view um, in films. And, and I think that's why the 90s in particular has an, more independent than studio. But in the 90s, you had a lot of really singular female directors who had visions that they got to do. Um, unfortunately, then the bubble burst. And that's a, that's another, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Please listen to our 1992 but, um, episode yeah, about we'll, women we'll filmmakers. Talk, we'll talk about how all the women got to make one great film and then they got to make no other films mm -hmm. yeah. um, also please see african-american filmmakers in the early 90s same thing yep yeah so many Ugh, unfortunately okay so let's let's kind of get into carrie hamilton because we met we've mentioned her a few times i yeah, was sad like life. Sad, sad life but man what a powerhouse talent like it is just so unfortunate that she passed the way she did and she struggled with substance abuse so much because she is effervescent in this movie and she's not a standard leading woman like everyone would have known her from like the two seasons of the fame tv show 
show where she yeah. they, played, and she's Carol Burnett's daughter. Talk about a shadow to live in. Oh, um, yeah. But she's so incredible in this. Like she's effervescent. She's very much her. She's her. Yeah, yeah. she feels very distinct in a way that you don't see very much in in eighties films. Um, I, I think. But I keep going back to Desperately Seeking Susan because it's like a pinnacle movie. But like Madonna got to be very unique because she's basically Madonna, right? But most most women in, um, especially non films not directed by women in the eighties, they're very cringy roles and very cringy things that actresses were asked to do. And when you do get to see uh, an actress get to really clearly sink her teeth in and and all the the rawness of a performance like this and the comedy and the romance, and the sexuality, none of it feels forced, none of it feels artificial, none of it feels voyeuristic. It's very rare, and and mostly found in films directed by by women, and I, I think you really see her her thriving in this movie. Now, yeah. as this is a music movie, and Carrie Hamilton and Diamond uh, picked the music themselves, how do we feel about that? Does it serve? Does it hold up? Is it a little hokey? Because they're definitely using as many public domain songs as yeah. they can. <laughs> yeah, there's, what song is it? They sing like five times. You make um, me feel like a natural yeah, woman. They do, yeah. Yeah, which I don't That's, dislike. I think I, it's cute. I, I love it. I think it's cheesy at the same time. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's definitely the height of like cheesy, cheesy cover songs. Or I think I saw someone on Letterbox call it like karaoke versions of songs, oh. which I think is a little harsh. That's too mean. This, but yeah, at they're the same both time, I'm like, that's I can see it. Like a really, really good like duets style karaoke where they're like you know, scamming people because they're actually really good singers doing <laughs> It's not just the karaoke the host making so yeah. girl, he thinks it's cute sing Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Yeah. Yeah. That's me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love Milo. I love Milo so much. <laughs> As you should. Just, that is not a karaoke song. It's banned from karaoke. Too long. No, too long. Too long. Too long. But Home on the Range is the one oh, other yeah, song that yeah. she sings, which I was like, I actually oh, love. I actually loved that cover. Yeah. I was like, you know what? This makes me really like this song. It was stuck <laughs> in my head all weekend after I watched this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it is cool, though, that like the final song and some of the original songs that are in there, like Diamond and Carrie, they wrote them. Like, um, I I feel like another filmmaker might have been like, hey, let's get somebody else to write these songs and, and, and have you sing them. But they wrote them. So I think that lends to the authenticity of the two performances. Yeah, I think it does too. Cause you see, you see them really growing as creative partners in the movie and they were creative partners in real life too. And, and I don't, you know, not to say like, oh, they're not acting, but at the same time, they're definitely tapping into something that's very real and you can see it on screen. Yeah, there's actually chemistry between these two, which is, you know, nice in a romantic comedy. I feel like that's one of the issues I have with a lot of modern romantic comedies. Oh, there's casting, no chemistry. There's no chemistry. And they're casting no. for names. They're not casting for, like, I want to see these two kiss. Like, that's just, yeah, or, you know, fuck. <laughs> they're, they're just really not interested. Depressing. I yeah. mostly review rom-coms these days. And it's every once in a while, there's, like, a good one. And it's like, ah, we love it. But for every one good one, there's, like, 10 terrible ones. Yeah, please excuse the term, but, like, we're so thirsty for them. We're so yeah, thirsty. We like, need, please. And there's so many, like, Diamond Yuki is very dynamic and, and very charismatic. He's very attractive. And he's a, he's a cutie, yeah. Mm-hmm. And half the rom-coms today 
they're not even hiring people who have any charisma. And then there's all these actors with charisma who aren't getting cast in romantic comedies. And it's like, what are you doing? But he's also the majors in a romantic comedy already. He's got charisma. Oh my God, please. (laughs) He he also has the little, like, this just kills me every time, but like the I've been naughty smile. Like he says the little thing and he does the little I've been naughty and you're like, yeah. He's definitely got a twinkle that you like to see. Okay, let's go into the dynamic of uh, women directors in general and the challenges they would face making a movie period. But it sounds like Fran had some unique issues directing as in Japan, not just as a woman, but also as the fact that like North American directors are very different from Japanese directors. Do you want to talk about this at all, Mariah? Yeah, the the Japanese culture um, is definitely a lot more, you know, hardline. And the director is, you listen to the director and it's less collaborative. You don't call them their name. There's like a specific word. Yeah. It's like they are director. It's a title like sensei. Yeah, or, although, yeah. although there are some Japanese directors who cross the line into abusive. And, and that's definitely, there's been some headlines about that um, in the last few years. So I think this culture is, is changing because it can lead to, you know, really uneven power dynamics. But it's it's it goes to the the way that a lot of things in ja- in Japanese culture, um, when you're as kind of like England, when you your culture is an island, you develop certain ways of doing things so that people, you know, the the um, culture runs right because it's you can't afford chaos on an island, really, right? And so a lot of island cultures are really rigid. And she's American, right? And like a New Yorker, so she's definitely going to be a very different style and so I think she found that hard she found crew members didn't want to listen to a woman or and especially a woman who was a little soft in the way that she gave you know her her directions and women in general it's kind of funny because women in American filmmaking they it if if she were as um sort of hard as they wanted her to be in Japan in America she would have been labeled difficult right and like hysterical or whatever and never worked again and it's it's that weird double standard of like how women are supposed to behave on set and and what collaboration is collaboration and what is actual direction and definitely, I don't know how she got this movie finished. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think Kaz was a big help with that. And it seemed like he was really good at like intervening when he had to intervene because it seems like the crew and other cast members would come to him to discuss it. And he was like, this is not my film. I'm just a producer. Go talk to your director. You know, not even my wife. Go talk to the director. So it seemed like he was good with that. What's wild to me is that she started out too soft and she had cast members quit because she was too soft and they couldn't work like that. They just found themselves so disoriented and it was not the environment they wanted to work with. They're like, you have to tell me what to do. Like, I, yeah. I can't just... She's just. like, uh... Then when she would yell and put her foot down, the crew would complain and be like, we don't take direction like that from women. Like, women, women do not talk yeah. to us like that. So it's just like, it, it, damned if you do, damn if you don't, right? But I think eventually you just kind of find the crew that's going to do the work you want to do. And uh, obviously she got it done, so she commanded the respect she needed to command. Yeah, it's interesting uh, in one of the clips that you sent us, Becky, um, I think it was that screening that you mentioned earlier in 2019, um, Fran actually said that she watching that film in 2019 again she was the first time that she related to Wendy she actually related to Hero more which I was like that's weird like I thought Wendy was like meant to be kind of you and and now that you're talking about this and and sort of her struggles it kind of makes sense to me where she's like trying to make her mark and trying to figure out her place without doing gimmicks and 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 staying true to herself um so I just think that that that's so that's so interesting. I feel like she's probably both of the characters, to be honest. She probably is both of the characters. Like they're the two sides of of her, 
Yeah. Which I think makes sense. A lot of, a lot of, you know, writer directors, there's a little bit of them and all the characters. Yeah. Which is fascinating. We think about David Lynch, like (laughs) he's a little bit the lady in the radiator. He's a little bit the guy, the lady behind the dumpster. He's a little bit terrified about having a child. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) So for a long time, this film was basically impossible to see. Uh, A YouTube version got put up a little while ago, which had all the sound out of sync. But this was a film that was basically considered lost, and we're going to talk about why. There is a new 4K restored version either coming out soon or available now that you can check out. But let's get into uh, why Fran uh, resisted having it restored for so long, uh, as well as what happened to a lot of movies that were independently produced, like this movie in the mid to late 80s. First of all, a lot of the prints and materials have have disappeared. The distributor went bankrupt. Um, So that's part of it. But also, Fran, in a lot of interviews, has kind of said that she doesn't think that this film needs to be seen anymore, that this is not, that it should be maybe remade, but we don't need to screen it, which I just think is so crazy to me. And I, I wondered if it was partially like she was worried about you know, being culturally appropriative or that people would view it in a different lens nowadays. But I feel like this is such a a cool, enjoyable film. And it's and and all this stuff that we're talking about about the landscape of 1988 and and women filmmakers, I feel like people would just flock to watch this in the same way that they flock to watch um, something like Party Girl is getting like a restoration nowadays. Like, yeah. like and that movie's problematic in some ways too. But like I think we need to look at these films anyway like why not and I I also feel like this film would play even better today I feel like people would just love it like I've seen people say they want they want the soundtrack where's the soundtrack on Spotify I want to listen to these songs but they can't it reminds me of of Liquid Sky except the director of Liquid Sky wanted his film restored he was tired of people watching it on VHS when people complained about the Blu-ray they were like, it's not how it's supposed to be. He's like, no, this is how it's supposed to be. It wasn't Those are the colors. Be, yeah. It wasn't supposed to be like Ring where everyone was making copies of copies of VHS. That mm-hmm. is how I first saw Liquid Sky, though, and I did enjoy that experience. But seeing it on the Blu-ray 4K restoration, I was like, this is amazing. And I feel the same way about this film. It, it captures a specific time, a specific feeling um, that's gone. I think that's important to be able to see that. There's all, lots of art that hasn't aged particularly well but if you and I think this has aged a lot better than quite a few films from the 80s to be honest and um like there's nobody in you know yellow face brown face (laughs) like everyone is who they are That's already a step above yeah. many comedies. From the this one era. thing I can see people being concerned about is that, that where she's in the Hostess Club, but that's what Hostess Clubs were like. There that's is what a they were like. there's yeah. a great documentary from the National Film Board here in Canada uh, about Hostess Clubs in in uh, the early 2000s that I highly recommend watching. And it it it's that like she's in there with the camera, another female filmmaker. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly that. So it's uh, the biggest thing though that she says that the reason why she doesn't think anyone would want to see it or needs to see it is she says it's very representational of an MTV era where people sat and watched music for extended periods of time for three to four minutes. You would just watch someone sing in different graphics and things. And we don't do that anymore. Now everything's like bite size, bite size, bite size, which is not true. I mean, little Nas is music videos. Everyone just lines up for. Yeah. And, and just last year, Kat Cuero had a movie with Jennifer Lopez, marry me where it was like watching a concert film, even though it was a romantic comedy she played full, like three or four, maybe five full songs. And it was great. Like, cause yeah. it's Jennifer Lopez. And, um, I think people would love it. 
Yeah. And I think this is a time capsule, not just of, of the time and of the, the space and everything, but also how many Carrie Hamilton performances do we have? Not many. Like, yeah, and not it's many. a really good one. I, I want to see this on the big screen with other people. I, I feel yes. like it would play it so would well. So fun. Right? Yeah. So fun with an audience. I know. All right. Speaking of a big audience and so much fun, let's move on to our next movie because it's The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. And that's coming up after the break. And you know, one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite. The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog no. who likes very fancy things. Sure. And, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you, you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something, Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of, of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost, even the big boys. And like, forget about, uh, you know, discovering black directors of the 1970s, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out. And it's always very satisfying when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. When we last visited with director Penelope Spheris, she was piecing together impressive performances from five-year-olds in The Little Rascals. But before she directed the influential Wayne's World, she stamped her place in cinematic history with a series of documentaries called The Decline of Western Civilization, Parts 1 through 3. Literally riot-inducing, the documentaries covered aspects of Los Angeles subcultures from the early 80s into the late 90s. Now, today, we're going to be focusing on Part 2, The Metal Years, but all three are must-watch movies. Now, Mariah, you You've seen all three of these? You are oh, fans? Oh, yeah. I, I've seen uh, when those restorations came out a few years Same. ago, or almost 10 years ago now. I saw them all at UCLA. I think it was oh. UCLA. Or it was the Academy Museum. I can't, the museum didn't exist yet. The Academy used to do screenings in LA at the Bing, the Bing Theater that no longer exists. They demolished <laughs> it. But yep. rest in peace, the Bing. Um, anyway, they're beautiful. These films are beautiful. The restorations are beautiful. They're, they're timeless films. Some There's of my favorite things ever put to celluloid. Such a labor of love. Thank God Anna Fox was like, Mom, it's time. Let's go. Open the storage closets and go. And also, so many people lose the rights to their films. And the reason why Decline yeah. Part 3 hadn't been seen, it wasn't distributed, was because anyone said, okay, you want us to distribute this, you give us the rights to 1 and 2. And she was like, no. And uh, so she kept all the rights, which is why we we got that beautiful restoration of all three with all the extra footage and how they were intended to be seen. Can you imagine how people would chop these up? No, that would be horrible. Ugh, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> well, Let's think about nicer things. So, uh, yeah. Mariah, why don't you give us a little breakdown of how, what the film is about? Following up on Decline 1, which was about the punk scene, this is uh, several years later. Fast forward to 1987-88. We're in the midst of, like, glam metal. You know, we have Aerosmith. We have Gene Simmons. We have Motorhead. We have uh, Molly Crew. 
we have ones that people don't remember anymore, like Wasp and Poison. Well, I think people remember Poison. Fixin, Faster Pussy. Fred Michaels. Yeah, all Fred these. Michaels. Yeah, people <laughs> yes. remember Poison. I love Poison. Um, <laughs> but um, what was it? Brett Michaels, something of love. He had a TV show. Rock of yes, love. Yes, he did. Rock, Rock of love. It. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that in forever. Um, but the point is, he, this is this, it's not just these interviews with these, with these bands and very iconic, amazing bands, but there was also a lot of the metal going, especially the metal women. I yeah. love the interviews with the metal women and, and they're contrasted with, I think it was an orange County cop. Who's like talking about how metal culture is dangerous. And then there's <laughs> like so the funny. sleazy, there's like the sleazy club owners. And so anyone who loves, or loves the idea of like 80 sunset strip culture, which was a very distinct time in, I think the closest parallel is like the early late eight, late sixties, early seventies rock time. And this, they're like the two biggest, lots of drugs, lots of partying, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Like those are the two eras. Only this era had the biggest hair, I think. <laughs> and the most the most eyeliner. So um and it's it there's um there's music, there's interviews, there's comedy, there's document straight documentary. There's it really is like a little time capsule. Like you feel you feel like you've like fallen into 1987 Los Angeles more than any, any other movie. It's incredible. And this, of course, is the movie that got her Wayne's World with her understanding of headbanger culture. So that was, you know, kind of how that um, produced by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who went on as they started as producers and they went on and they went on and made Little Miss Sunshine and Battle of the Sexes and like all kinds of, you know, they're an iconic director duo now, but they got their start with movies like this. Well, Penelope Spears is just such an interesting director in general. We talked about her a little bit with Little Rascals and just the fact that she edited in camera in her head bite-sized pieces of performances for children to create them coherently. Like, it's just, if you go and watch that movie and keep that in mind that that's what she's doing, you're just like, how did you do this? This is crazy. And you look how young those kids are. You're just like, the way your brain works, that's just nuts. She's, she's got one of those um, very few skips kind of filmographies. Her her early films, like her films in between um, the two Decline movies, uh, Suburbia is one of the most harrowing like dramas I think I've ever seen. It's so good. Um, and then her early shorts, she has a short called I Don't Know, which was an early trans film. It, you watch that and then you watch her, her later stuff and you're like, wow, how did, you know, like, how did she not, how did it take her? But it also took her 10, 10 years from the short to making um, decline. and It's the same as Lizzie Borden, who we've talked about on the show previously. Um, the Weinsteins did not just terrible sexual things to women. Uh, they also completely destroyed a lot of women's directorial careers, and they just smeared them and badmouthed them. And mm -hmm. they did that to Lizzie Borden. They did it to Penelope Spheris. It's one of the reasons she does not direct anymore, is she's just like, I knew there was weird stuff being said about me, and I couldn't figure out where it was from. And when all the Weinstein stuff came out, she was like, there. That's, That's exactly what it was. Yeah. So it's, uh, she is now a uh, real estate developer. She invested all of her money in real estate. Now she's a landlord and she flips houses. And like, that's really what she does, which is like, of course you which do. Which is like, a, a very Los Angeles pivot in your career. Like, <laughs> yeah. Every, everybody who's lived in LA for more than 10 years has dabbled in real estate. <laughs> I would totally watch that yeah. reality show. Penelope Spears for Stores Houses. Oh, yeah, my I, God. Would, I would watch that too. She's, she's probably a great landlord. I would yeah. think. It's yeah, so crazy, yeah. though, that, like, she was smeared because, like, everything I read about her makes her sound like such a, like, thoughtful and considerate, like, person and filmmaker. Like, I know we're going to talk a little bit about some of the controversies of, of this film, but, like, 
I was reading that she like became registered as like a foster parent after she made decline three because she wanted to be able to help kids that were unhoused. And Mm -hmm. even when you watch this movie, like um, part two, she's like so thoughtful. Like I I know there's a one scene with um, a, a character who, who admits that he's an alcoholic and like the way that she's talking to him, she's like trying to get through to him. And I just feel like, this is not a person that should be smeared. This is a person that should be celebrated for the way that she approaches films. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, um, the way that she captures the sexism of this era, it's done in tongue in cheek specifically out of, I think, respect for the women who are being used like eye candy. And she sort of films them like eye candy, but the, it's definitely done in a way that is purposefully ridiculous she's doing the same things to the men though right like the yeah. way she like goes up their lycrid legs and like you know the yeah. chests and she they're, really they're... subverts the subverts the gaze with the camera so everyone's pretty much everyone's being thrown under like a microscope <laughs> in this movie uh, one of the things that just kind of blew my mind because I've seen this movie probably 14, 15 times now. It's one of those my like, what yeah. do I want to watch? I'll just throw on decline. I, I love it because the it. other two, the other two require a little bit of like I'm gonna. They're a little more harrowing. This one's definitely more bubbly. This is definitely the fun, the funnest one. Of yeah, the totally. Yeah. But there's something I've seen in this that I've never seen in any other music documentary is where they talk about the men using women for like groceries, for financial stability, for things yes. like that to get themselves. I've never seen that on anything else before. And they're just like, yeah, these women are our meal tickets. Well, I just had this chick sew up my pants today or else you guys would see my dick hanging out the bottom here. <laughs> you didn't do a very Sorry, good job, dude. You know? it, it flips It flips the whole idea of what uh, quote-unquote groupies were like, yeah. right? And I'm sure many rock stars from the, the 60s on, you know, they painted their their muses as as whatever, but they I'm sure a lot of those women like were paying for, you know, like, yeah, there are stories about about um, the various women who supported Jim Morrison. Uh, um, can I think of anybody's name right the, now? The big thing I'm thinking about right now is that in, um, I mean, it, it, we think about people like Hunter S. Thompson and people like this. You cannot function on that level doing that many substances without having someone going, someone okay, time me. to stop, time to sit down, like editors. So not only is it their editors, but more often than not, it's also their their partners or wives going like, okay, it's time to stop. You're going a little far. You got to you gotta make next yeah. week's check. You yeah, know? I, like, I was thinking of, of Eve, Eve Babbitts. Eve Babbitts, yes. among others, helped men. She actually helped many rock stars get, get fed, basically. And in this one, you know, like, obviously there's that famous scene of Ozzy cooking his own breakfast, but we we know his wife, like, kept him straight and narrow for, for 40 oh, years. Well, that's like what Sharon, he says is that Sharon, Sharon everything. Yeah, before Sharon, he was completely like, he is who he is. I mean, the Osbournes doesn't happen without Sharon, which means no. he doesn't get his revitalization, which means he isn't Ozzy in the way we now know Ozzy, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. without Sharon. I think that one, the Chris Holmes interview, and um, I love Lemmy, but that's just because I love Lemmy. Um, but like just the some of the individual little people who were on their way up are definitely the most like stick in your head moments. But Ozzy is so great in that because he's so, everybody's so candid like everybody is so open about how much drugs they do everyone is so open about um, or did uh, about how many people they're sleeping with about the lifestyle but also about how destructive the lifestyle is as well like it's Mm -hmm. it is she really pulled out she really pulled out not just the like glamour but the sleaze through their own stories like she got them so comfortable that they would be introspective which I think shows how good of an interviewer she is even if some of her camera stuff is a little, you know, I know some of the men afterwards were a little uncomfortable with how she filmed them, but 
Um, Sorry, that's very funny. funny. (laughs) That shouldn't be funny. I get it. I 100% get it. It's fascinating. You know, it's, I think, um, I think she kind of helped them a lot of, a lot of them really think about themselves in a different way, especially after you, you watch yourself in the movie and you're like, did I really say that? Am I really like this? And, you know, cinema often, you know, distorts, but it can distort and show truth at the same time. And I, I do think this is a film that does that. Yeah. Well, there's some stuff here that I think is interesting in terms of the way she sets up certain people and the way they want to be seen. So for the, when you're introduced to Gene Simmons, he's going yeah. through a women's lingerie shop and he's like, mm-mm-mm. And it's like, <laughs> you are married to Shannon Tweed. <laughs> like, you're, you're good, sir. You know, like, it's just the way he does that. Uh, Paul Stanley is literally bathed in women oh and he asks, her yeah. about, he asks her about groupies. And, like, you actually just see him shocked for a minute talking about, like, oh, yeah, these, these women are disposable, but he actually seems uncomfortable for a moment. But, like, they come off as very, like, try-hardy. But, like, the people who come off as effortlessly cool are the people who are, like, just aren't—they're just them. Like, Ozzy just making breakfast. Or um, I love Lemmy is just standing on a hill, probably coming straight from the rainbow room, smoking a cigarette, just, yeah. you know, hanging out. And you're like, what an interesting way that people would want themselves presented in this film. Because you know that the, the the Kiss guys asked for that. Yeah, and, and it, it comes across—I'm sure they meant it to come across, like, look how badass. But you're like— guys <laughs> you look like a creep like what are you doing but also the, the women don't seem they're not they're not they don't seem like floozies even though they're dressed like floozies they 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 there's some agency there which is wild you wouldn't think like half naked girls next to a rock star would feel empowering but it kind of does the way she films them the woman at gazaris who is talking about how classy it is at gazaris yeah. i think that is uh, again, a very memorable moment. But for me, I'm like, oh, that's a little bit of a low blow on that woman. Like, that's a bit like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that one. But I mean, she's saying it. Maybe that was a mentality at the time, right? It's a classy place. And it it's on sunset. And you think Beverly Hills is classy. They can't hold a candle to this place. That's that's probably how she felt. Or at least on the, on the la- layer of like... Uh, sleaziest to least sleazy because is pretty bad yeah well it, yeah. also if you look at some of the other girls from the dance competition there's the one that they're like okay that's too sexy you can't do that you can't just have a g-string on that's not what this is about like i feel like she was pretty clothed compared to some of the other girls so she did think she was classy you know um yeah and yeah. uh and i think if you're just like in that world this is normal. This is just, this just, just what it is. It's hypersexual. It's, it's sleazy. And, and, and that's what you're into. As, as one of the girls say, it, it brings out the bisexual tendencies. That's like a line that I just. <laughs> that's a great loved, line. Right. That's a great line. And I, it's true that part of what's interesting about hair metal is, is these, for the most part, very heterosexual men playing with gender representations and, and playing around with, makeup and big hair and things that aren't necessarily masculine because they're daring people to say they're not masculine. Right. And, and so whether it was intentional or not, the hair metal scene is, is very queer, Uh, queer in the sense, not sexuality, but queer in the sense of like playing with um, not expectations. What's the right for? I can't but like think of gender anything. identity representations, yeah, things like that. Yeah. Playing, playing with the norms and playing with what is considered respectable. And and especially again, this being the height of like Reagan's America, <laughs> it's like the, 
it's it's wild to see, you know, like Dee Snyder and some of the things that that he did. Well, we're coming out of, I, I do recommend people go back and listen to our episode on uh, Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Uh, oh, that's such a good show or good so, movie. So good. Uh, but so we do good. a whole segment there where we kind of break down what the Tipper Gore uh, decency trials were, which is absolutely fascinating. And just how bad she was at it and the people she called, like Dee Snyder, brilliant. Frank Zappa, brilliant. Like all these people she thought are like, are going to make my case for the Supreme Court. And they just just destroyed her. Right. So it's a lot of smart, a lot of smart men in, in this culture too. There's for every like bimbo guy, there's like a, like a legit genius. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think, okay, so let's get into, (laughs) let's get into the, the staging element of this, because there are those that say this pokes a little too much fun at the heavy metal genre and at, at these, these people, especially people are kind of fascinated by like the never wors. Like there's a lot of people Mm. here who are like young, hungry people. They talk about how difficult it was to get your band in the sunset strip, uh, and, and kind of Come up there. Apparently, Penelope Spheris was offered Spinal Tap, and she turned it down because she was like, "This is making fun of a genre I actually love." But I feel like this is pretty harsh on that genre as well. What do you guys think? I think I don't know that I would call it harsh so much as just maybe amplified. Like she's she's. Ta- I feel like she's taking the culture and turning it turning it up a little bit because I think she's using like she's using irony to to, to find some truth in there. And, um, I don't know that she would have been great at Spinal Tap now that I, I've never heard that before. Um, cause I don't know, I don't know that, yeah, I don't know that parody is really what she's going for. I think she's trying to go for satire almost in this, it's like a satirical documentary almost, which good satire doesn't punch down, it punches up. And I think that's what, I think that's what she's doing. I, I don't know. I feel like it's, some of the stuff these people say are just what they say, you know? And I think some of these people were going to like dig themselves into a hole no matter what. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there was nobody else that was really taking aim at this culture and looking at it and being like, okay, this seems so glamorous. This seems so fun and, and frivolous, but there's problems here. And I like, I don't think that there's a problem with that. Like, also, she, could she have known that some of these guys weren't going to make it? Like, like obviously... There's literally yeah. like every person she asks, like, what happens if you don't make it? And they're like, I'm going to make it. Right. But I don't think she could have fully known who was not going to make it and who was going to make it, you know? So I feel like it's hard to look back on it now and say, oh, she was like, you know, taking advantage or making fun. I think that just some of these people were outrageous. And, and she just like put a lens on that and said, mm-hmm. this is outrageous. And some of the stuff that's happening here is like, not okay. One of my favorite parts is when she's talking to Steven Tyler and he's saying something. He's 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 he was being serious before about the drug use and stuff, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about like sex and he's like, "That's where Aerosmith is right now. I think we, we do a good job of, of fucking." Okay. Um. Another filmmaker wouldn't have included her saying okay, and I feel like that is so powerful in that we do feel a commentary coming from her, and even the uncut yeah. Chris Holmes interview, like. I could see somebody thinking that that's taking advantage, but I thought like it was really thoughtful and like really heartfelt that she was trying to get through to this guy. She's like, there's something going on here. And I don't know if anybody's talking to you about this, even your mom that's sitting next to you. Like, I feel like somebody needs to get through to you. And if it has to be me, then it's me, you know? And, and I don't know. I didn't see that. Like, it is a funny movie, but I thought 
there was actually some care for some of these people at the same time, but maybe that's just the way that I... No, I would agree. I think she's she's showing a mirror to, to them and some people needed to see the like the fact that they're not respecting their body, that they're um, allowing themselves, you know, to fall into, into excess in a, in too far into it. Right. And a lot of people, you need that mirror to get that message across. Right. Well, here's what's wild is actually this film did boost the profile of a number of these bands, including Faster Pussycat and Odin. Mm -hmm. And then and then 1993 happened and everything changed. So we are on that with 1993, of course, the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit. So we're kind of already at the end of the era for these people already. Like, Mm -hmm. as you can see, the market's already saturated. They're already fighting with like every band to get in. Guns N' Roses is already uh, enormous. People are dropping their names everywhere. So like you're already kind of coming to the end of this. Like obviously remains a subculture. Like the, the Sunset Strip does continue with like the glam, like the Rainbow Room stays on, Gazari stays on, mm-hmm. you know, Whiskey A Go Go is still around, all of that. The Viper Room rises. Um, you've got all that kind of stuff, but you're at the end of an era for these people and they don't know it yet. Like it's a bit like the dinosaurs looking at the meteor coming, going, What's that do? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and you started to see the change a little bit, like to your point, this was 87, 88, and you already started to see alternative music getting more mainstream play outside of college radio um in excess you know became a more of a pop band right around then with kick and you really started to see a shift rem became bigger to your point about having um these bands that don't make it it's it's i think it's still important to know that they tried right and that they're not necessarily you especially looking at it maybe not 1988 but looking at it now knowing what we know now that they maybe didn't make it not just because not necessarily because their confidence was misguided, but because they came too late. Yeah. And and that happens to a lot of people where they're part of um makes me think about my 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 friend's brother wanted to be a stop motion visual effects guy. And he graduated from high school same year the Jurassic Park came out. Yeah. And that changes the game. And that you changes know, everything. And then he now he's a now he's a film professor, but you know, like he he just the thing he loved was gone. Um, and I think that, that adds some pathos to the film with modern eyes. My husband works in music and, uh, I, he'd never seen this before and I made him watch it because I do that to him sometimes. And he loved it. Like he was like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen about the music industry lifestyle Mm -hmm. and like what it is to be a musician. And he, the only issue he had with this film was that ride of everyone being like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Because he's like, I agree. To achieve a certain level of success, you have to be delusional. Like, yeah. you have to have that. He's like, what I wish you had is that paired next to, like, Aerosmith, et cetera, saying the same thing. So that you can kind of see the two. He's like, the fact that they separated those two things mm. makes it a little too mean of, like, kind of poking fun at these people and not just like, no, this is actually required to get to that level of fame. Like, you need that kind of endurance and that sort of uh, stuff. And I I can see his point there is that the editing does kind of single that out of, like, these were also rants. And maybe that is just looking at it now from a 2023 point of view, but it, it yeah. does feel a little mean. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting if she did it purposefully to like that'd be a good question like did you do this purposefully to sort of single these out or did you do it purposely to single them out because they were the up-and-comers and they're just now looked at as also rans do you know what i mean because they yeah. at the time they were all up-and-comers so they might you might not have thought oh yeah let's put them over here because they're clearly not going to make it right 
Yeah. They're also all still playing in bands, we should say. Like every single one of them is still working in a band. Sometimes with their original bands, they're still going. Like Lizzie Borden is, or sorry, London is still touring as London. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point about the Sunset Strip, there's still um, a lot of these bands, they don't command the, the ticket prices they did at one point. But there's still like revival shows on the Sunset Strip all the time for a lot of these bands, which is kind of fascinating that 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 revival, like I'm now old enough that the stuff I loved as a when I was a teenager are like on the revival circuit now instead of the normal circuit. I'm like, uh, I hate this. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, I'm glad that that's a thing now with uh, music because um, these, you know, the main thing that you get from this movie is the passion all of these people had, yeah. right? And and you can be sad that they didn't, you know, hit the superstardom, but they all were um, artistically fulfilled, I feel like. And they're all still, for the most part, being able to express themselves through the thing they love. Yeah. I think a, a really happy ending, sort of. Not everyone had a happy ending, obviously. There was some some bad bad struggles for, for a lot of people, but, you well, know. We can definitely get into Chris Holmes because that is a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I hadn't seen um, you linked out to his that article about him getting sober and I had not seen that. And, you know, maybe you know that's a great story. That's really a great story. It's an excellent story. It is interesting to see because uh, he was married to Lita Ford of The Runaways. Mm-hmm. in the early 90s. And she actually talks about in interviews how the whole thing was staged, it was set up, and it ruined his career. And Chris Holmes says, no, that was accurate, that was correct, and my life was doing poorly. So it is interesting to see how many people were like, no, this was my life, this was accurate. And most people say that, but there's other people's point to it going, no, this was this was a setup. Mm-hmm. Did we? F- and the one thing that Penelope Spears does say that I did find a little misleading is when he pours the bottle over top of his face, you are led to believe that's vodka and it's not. It's pool water. So that is like one of the moments where I did feel a little bit misled because I always assumed it was vodka and it is not. It's pool water. So which is a very extreme moment. What do you guys think? What Does that cross an ethical divide for you? A little bit. But then the more you study documentary, the more you realize most documentaries are shaped (laughs) if not staged there's there's it's a whole there's so many films that documentary films that stayed even just last year there was a documentary called Miha and like it's 50 percent of the scenes in Miha are were like recreations of conversations um so it's you know it's like one of those like documentary doesn't mean truth yeah 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 and also, like, it's not far-fetched to think that Chris Holmes would do that. Like, based yeah. on his behavior, he talks about that he's drinking all the time, that he can't go a day without drinking. Like, I, I also think he probably didn't even know what he was doing and maybe even thought, like, it was vodka in there fully, too. Like, like I don't know. I wasn't that disturbed by that scene. And the fact that I also read that Penelope felt conflicted and felt like that interview didn't go well. Like she almost didn't want to include it and then ended up chopping it up to to fit it in there. Um, says that she even felt a little bit of a pause with it, but then ended up putting it in there. And of course it's now become, I would say the most iconic scene so. from the film. But yeah. I, I feel like Chris is on the money in that like, it's like, I think one or two years after this comes out, like he leaves Wasp and, and gets sober and everything. And I think, I think this movie probably changed some people's lives. Like I'm sure there's, aside from him, I'm sure there's other people that saw themselves in this movie and went, 
oh shit, like I come across yeah. like an idiot. Like maybe I'm going to change my path, you know, and maybe I'm going to start, maybe I'm going to get a job or, or whatever. I, I also think about that scene with Randy from Odin where he says that he, he contemplates suicide. And I was like, oh my God, like his bandmates didn't seem to know about that. Like I, I felt yeah. like it was a shock to them. And I was just like, I feel like this movie cracked open a lot for some of the people in the movie, but also probably cracked open a lot of people that watched the movie that were like thinking that these were the coolest guys on earth. And suddenly we're like, and made them more relatable in some cases, not in every case, but in some cases you definitely saw vulnerability that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Yeah. Like they seem like hot shit all the time and that they're, they're, they're full of it, but, but they are people at the end of the day. And Mm -hmm. a lot of this is calculated, even like Brett Michaels. I feel like he was, pretty honest about like how calculated their image is and why they're doing it. And I think that that was so interesting. I don't know. I, I don't feel like this is a problematic documentary. I I know that there's stage stuff, but I just think even if some of it is a little stage, it's still documenting a time period, I think pretty accurately. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, the last thing I just want to bring up is uh, in an interview with uh, Kanak metal DJ uh, Ton Mastery, who also appears in this as, uh, you know, a woman DJ who who works in this medium. Very unusual and also extremely cool. Comes off as very cool in the documentary. Uh, Penelope Spheris uh, says that she will consider the film a success if kids look at it and learn what it's like to try to make it and get some insight into how difficult it is. Maybe years from now, parents could give their kids a cassette of the film, adorable, and say, if you want to be a rock star, just watch this first. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really great way to think about it um, because it is it shows you all the things that make you uh, make it alluring, but it it definitely to your point with with the vulnerability uh, shown by some of the the people and the talk of alcoholism and just lots of depravity that isn't fun. Um, you get both sides of that coin. I feel like if this documentary was made now, you would get more discussion about the mental health issues that a lot of these people have that then lead to this Absolutely. sort of drug abuse and alcoholism. Um, one of the things that um, Chris Holmes talks about now, so he does a whole interview in the pool with his wife asking him questions now that he's sober. It's adorable. Um, but he talks about how Blackie Lawless, who is the lead singer of Wasp, like really had him under his thumb and like he was looking for ways out and he was really freaking out and the only way he could really cope with it was drinking copiously. Um, Um, And so, I mean, if we were to see this now with our awareness of, you know, mental health issues and trauma and and also just the the pressures of life on the road, like you are not sleeping, you're going from place to place, you're constantly jet lagged, like it's not an easy life. So to be able to to cope with that, you know, people turn to substances and it's such a part of the lifestyle and it's always available. Yeah. And I I think um, this was an era where you really weren't, you weren't discussing any of this as a culture we weren't you know the idea of an analyst was like something that neurotic new yorker rich new yorkers had and that was about it right and and now everybody's thankfully you know health insurance covers mental health and mental health is is baked into like gen z in particular is a generation that thankfully is really okay with saying you know what i think i might have depression or You know, my my um, childhood led to rough decisions and, and they can like avert it faster, right? And um, it's interesting to look at documentaries and other films that clearly are playing with the idea of mental illness without really having the language, even the cinematic language to to go as deep as we would go now or aren't as comfortable because if you do talk about it now, it's a taboo. 
right? Yeah. If you talk about it then, it was a taboo and no one watched your film because now it's a message film. And I think she she manages to make a film that is kind of a message documentary without ever making it feel like a message documentary. Like you don't feel like you've been lectured, but you feel like you've really learned quite a bit. You've been to the Church of Rock and Roll. <laughs> I think that is a perfect place to end it. So Emily Gagne, I want to thank you once again for joining us. Thank you, Becky. This was an absolute blast. I really loved both of these films, and I will always talk about women in film with you. Mariah Gates, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us for the first time. Thanks for having me. This was this was super fun, and um, always again love talking about female directors. It's there's they're under underheralded, and there's so many so many histories to be talked about. And can you tell people where they can read more of your writing about this and other things? Oh yeah, I have a um, a newsletter called Old, it's Old Films Flickr on Substack, and every Friday I write about um, about six to seven films directed by women, usually a couple of new releases, and then some streaming and or digital rental gems. I try to go as many decades, as many genres, as many kinds of films as possible been doing it for over a year now and I have not run out of films directed by women because despite what Hollywood might make you think there are actually There's thousands so and thousands and thousands of women who've made films and each of them have made multiple films and so there you would you could watch a film a day directed by a woman and not run out of movies Amazing. Thank you so much once again for joining us, Mariah. And you can join us once again in two weeks where we're looking at a little bit of shenanigans. It's a fish called Wanda and a little Nikita. And we're going to be joined once again by the fantastically funny Allison Dore. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton, senior produced by Becky Shrimpton, and co-produced by Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Emily Gagne and Mariah E. Gates as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>